encourage you once again to rise as we read the reading of God's Word from Matthew 6 and also from Matthew 26. Hear the reading of God's Word. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Then jumping over to Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. The flowers will wither and the, and the grass will fade, but your word stands firm and true forever and ever. Lord Jesus, hold this word true in our lives. Watch over these words. Carry them to your people. Mold and shape them to be more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> In 1995, a little film with a little star and a little director was released to much fanfare and anticipation, a story that few Americans had heard and maybe even fewer knew, and was handed to us on the silver screen, and now has become a part of American culture, Braveheart, starring some little director and some little star, Mel Gibson, was thrown at us and roared into our lives with dramatic effect and dramatic impact. If you know the story, it's about a fierce Scottish warrior called William Wallace. I'm sure many of us have seen the film. But it's a story that chronicles these battles of the Scottish Highlanders and their fight for freedom against the crown of England. And it twists and it turns and it does all these things. And it's the underdog story, right, of this small warrior in the Scottish Highlands fighting the tyranny of the crown. And we love these kind of stories, don't we? We like underdog stories to, to fight against the machine, all of these things. And we love to see the small, the little one win. But William Wallace is captured by the crown of England at the end of the movie. And we see near the end that he goes through all sorts of heinous torture. 
And the scenes just get worse and worse. And the movie isn't perhaps known for its epic battle scenes or, or the Scottish accents even as much as it is for one simple word. You see, there's a scene at the end of the movie where Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, is being tortured and to the point where he is near death and he can't speak anymore. And the scene, the, the, the pinnacle of the movie is this. The executioner dips his face into the ear of William Wallace and whispers, yield, yield. And he, William Wallace, Mel Gibson's character, musters up every strength that he has in, left in him and he cries out, Freedom! We know this scene, right? And after that, we all wanted to go buy kilts and live in the Scottish Highlands because we want to be William Wallace and we love these stories. And, but this is a part of who we are. This is, as Americans, we like this story even more than all the things I said, but freedom is who we are. It's part of our DNA. It's, it's part of what we're taught. It's what we learn. It's who we are. It's what our country's founded upon, Right? It's what we fight for and stand for is this thing called freedom. And perhaps that's why the movie settles so well into our culture and into our times. We want the ability to do our own thing. We want the ability to do our own thing without anybody telling us how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, or how long to do it. It's woven into the very fabric of our existence. Then we come to this thing called the Lord's Prayer. And tucked away in the Lord's Prayer is a little phrase. Your will be done. Your will be done. And I think if we step back for just a moment, that's a really hard thing for us to say. Because every ounce of who we are wants to be able to make our own choice. Our own decision My life is my life. But then we enter into the Lord's Prayer and we pray it every single week. Your will be done. So what does it mean to pray your will be done? How do we swim in the waters of freedom, autonomy, and your will be done? How do we do this? This is really difficult for us as Westerners to do, and specifically as Americans. How do we breathe this air of choice and freedom? At the same time, each and every week, as we just said a few minutes ago, your will be done. What does it mean? Martin Luther says these words of what it means to pray your will be done. He says this, to pray your will be done means to grant us grace, to bear willingly all sorts of sickness, poverty, disgrace, suffering, and adversity, and to recognize that in this, your divine will is crucifying our will. Whoa. Whoa. This goes against everything we know, doesn't it? This goes against everything that we feel or, or want to feel. He goes, this goes against everything we're told. This goes against every fabric of our identity as Americans. We shouldn't get sick. We shouldn't be poor. We shouldn't be disgraced. We shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't have to face adversity. We should not have to face things at all, let alone endure them, as Martin Luther says, right? 
These things shouldn't be a part of our life. Luther says that when we pray your will be done, he's saying, no, these things are a part of life, and God's will is going to allow us to suffer through them and to bear them up. We're told the most important feature about being an American is the ability to dictate our own lives, isn't it? Live your best life now. (laughs) You do you. This is what we say to each other in, in common conversations. Be you. Be who you are. Be everything that you can be. The only taboo thing is, is for you to infringe on my ability for me to do me. Then we come again. To your will be done. How do we reconcile these two things? How, do, how does this happen? Ultimately, what this petition is saying and requesting is this. When we say your will be done, we're saying what? My will not be done. Luther says, did you catch that at the end? He said, to pray your will be done is to understand that God's will is, he says, crucifying our will. Wow. We must recognize that the divine will crucifies our will. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer that the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. And Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our temptations. He he knows our desires. He knows our fears. He knows everything about you and about me. And this then is why he teaches us to pray this kind of prayer. But it doesn't only teach us the words, does he? He doesn't say, here are some words, go do them, and good luck to you. No, he doesn't. He teaches us these words, and then he shows us how to live them out. He shows us this is what this looks like to pray and to do your will be done. This is where we come into our scene in the Garden of Gethsemane here this morning. So let's enter into Matthew 26, and this is where we're going to be spending our time here today. After a long and exhausting week of very high highs and now entering the very lowest of lows, Jesus, after the Last Supper, leads his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he wants to pray before the hour of his betrayal. He tells some of his disciples to to sit over here, and then he takes three other guys with him to go into another place and to pray over here. And he just asks them, please sit here for a minute, for an hour, and, and pray with me. Can you do that, please? And he says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And I want to just do some original language study with you for just a moment, if you will allow me to do that. This word sorrowful is an important word for how we understand what it all means to this text here this morning. It's a word that carries a great, great deal of weight. It's a word that has a a far deeper meaning than just what we think of sorrowful. And we even, when we use the word sorrowful, that has a pretty heavy weight to it. We don't like that word sorrowful. We think of funerals and death and tragedy and all that sorrow. But what in the original language, in, in the Greek language, it actually goes even deeper than that. It's, it's, it's a heavy, heavy, heavy word. It means to be overcome with sorrow. To be overcome with sorrow, even to the point that that sorrow causes death. 
the sorrow that Jesus was experiencing was a tremendous and overwhelming sorrow. Fear. Terror. Why was Jesus overcome with this type of sorrow, this kind of fear and terror? Was it because he knew what was going to happen to him? That he, he knew what kind of horrible and heinous death that was going to be coming his way in the next few hours? Was it because he knew that he would have to carry the weight of sin, my sin, your sin? Look at verse 39 with me. Jesus fell on his face and prayed. Imagine this scene with me, if you will. That our Lord Jesus, overcome with sorrow that may cause death, falls on his face and prays. He falls on his face, cannot move another step, and says words that each and every one of us would say if we were in the same position as Jesus. My Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other thing that we can do, make that happen. If there's any other way, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why was Jesus overcome with sorrow for the things that I listed? Certainly, but really what he was overcome with, moreover than the understanding of a violent, nasty, terrible, awful death, moreover than understanding he would carry our weight of sin, but he's staring down a cup that he's going to have to drink. He's staring down the reality and the understanding that he's going to have to drink a cup of something heavy. Jeremiah 25, 15-16 says these words, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send them. Jesus was overcome with sorrow. He staggered because he knew he was going to have to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath. He knew that he was going to have to drink all of the fury, all of the holy and righteous anger, all of God's justice. He knew he would have to swallow that. He knew that it would be poured down his throat and he would have to drink it completely. And he was overcome with sorrow, the kind of sorrow that would cause someone to die. In other words, he was staring down into the pit of hell. Look now at verse 42 with me, if you could, of Matthew 26. Jesus, with this wrath imminent, with his toes curling the pit of hell, says, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, what does he say? Your will be done. What Jesus is saying here is more than a statement of yielding. It's a statement of trust. Jesus trusts that the will of the Father is the most glorious and most wonderful of all the options. And not only for himself, but for you and for me. This then is at the heart of what it means to pray your will be done. 
Trusting that the Lord's will is infinitely greater than mine. Trusting that the Lord's will is infinitely greater than ours. Even when it seems entirely different than what we may think is right and good. I want to look at a couple of things in Matthew 26 with us here this morning. A couple of things that are taking place in this scene. I think this will help us with a further understanding of what it means to pray, your will be done. What I want us to see this morning is that when we pray, your will be done, we're really saying, Father, I trust you. I trust you more than I trust myself. I've been intrigued by this scene in a new and fresh way this week. We all know this story pretty well, and we usually read it in the springtime around Easter and Holy Week. And so to, to look at it outside of that context has, has been interesting to me, and I found it fascinating. Just changing context a little bit is, is, is often quite um, fun and, and exhilarating. My, my intrigue, however, lies in the exposure of humanity. The exposure of Jesus' humanity, as well as we see the raw reality of our own humanity. We see all of that on display here in Matthew 26, in this, in this scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's been a long week for the disciples, hasn't it? It's been a long week of highs and lows. They've, uh, they've had to play traffic cop, haven't they? They've had to play bouncer. They've had to play chief cheerleaders. All of these kind of things within a span of, of one week, they've also had to see one of their very own stand up from a dinner party, walk out, knowing that he was going to betray their Lord. So all kinds of emotions, all kinds of drama and deeply impactful moments throughout this week are, are now coming to a culmination here in this garden. And you can imagine, it's late at night now, and these guys are just wiped out, wiped out emotionally, physically, and in their weakness and their humanity, they simply cannot stay awake. Jesus says to them, their spirit is willing, but their flesh is weak. Those who Jesus leans on the most during his earthly ministry fell asleep. His sorrow then increases, and he leaves them again to pray. And we know exactly what the disciples are feeling, don't we? Life has the uncanny ability to draw out our weakness. We may have all the intent to care for and love one another, even ourselves, but we're weak and we fail. The thing that sticks out to me much more than the sheer physical exhaustion is the exhaustion of their wills. And that's even what Jesus says. You're physically not able to do it. You're spiritually not able to do it. He says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Stay awake. Stay engaged. Stay engaged with the Lord in prayer that you would not fall into spiritual ruin. This is what Jesus is saying. But in our sin, in our weakness, the will fails. We want to be spiritually mature. We want to be more like Jesus, but we fall asleep. So why is it then that we are dead set on depending on our own will. Why do we try so hard and fight for so much that my will be done? That my choices be the one that 
matters. That my understanding is the one that matters. Why do we fight so hard for our ability to choose and for our ways to be acknowledged and that we know that our spirit is willing, but our flesh is weak? We fight for this because in our sin and weakness, we're defined by our autonomy. We're defined by our innate desire and sin and misery to be God. We fight for our identity because we don't trust the Lord. Jesus knows this. This is part of his sorrow. He knows that we long for other gods. He knows that we long for other gods other than the Father. We long for the God of control. We long for the God of choice, the God of independence, the God of, yes, even freedom. And if these are our gods, then that flies against the will of the Lord and demands action from the Lord. This demands the cup of God's wrath to be poured out. And Jesus now knows this is his cup to swallow. And he staggers, he falls to his face. Is there any other way? We are weak, but we're also weary. It's not only weakness that drives our wills to failure, it's also our weariness. At first glance, when we think of weakness and weariness, we may even put them side by side or even define them in the same way. And I'm going to put before you that I think there's a a unique distinction between the two things of weakness and weariness. Weakness is fundamental to who we are as sinful, broken people. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, in sin, we are weak. And because of that, weariness is an outcome. We are weary because we are pushing and pulling against our weakness. It's a constant fight. We fight against our sin and against our misery, against all of these things. And we're fighting against our weakness all the time, every day, every moment. And we just are flat out weary. We fight against our weakness when life hits snags and snares, don't we? There are times we're weary because we have given in to our weakness. We're weary because the hurts and the pains of life and death and sorrow and tragedy and all of life take their toll on us. But we're too busy going Mach 2 with our hair on fire to quote another 90s movie. All the time we're trying to be stronger, to do me, to live my best life, trying to cover every base, trying to make sure that our kids and our family and our loved ones have everything that they need and want and they have the best education, the best environments, the best of this, all of this. We're trying, 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 trying to make all of the boundaries and the borders just perfect so that no harm or sorrow or tragedy can come our way. We're searching, searching, searching for just the right formula, the right formula of life to make sure that we have the good life. And it seems as if that good life just slips right through our fingers. Every time, 
And this is a wearisome journey. Yet this is the thing called life. I'm not saying here this morning that we shouldn't try for the best things for our family or our loved ones. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am saying is that we find ourselves weary because we lean on our failing, weak wills more than we lean on the will of the Lord. When is it easier to trust God? When it's something that we like. It's not so easy to trust the Lord when it's not something that we like. It's difficult to trust God when the circumstance is something that is not pleasant. But it's in that moment, in the weak moments, in the weary moments, when we absolutely must trust the Lord. Submission to the Lord's authority, not ours, is the heart of trust. Martin Luther again says some important words to us. That without this type of trust in these moments... We will try and take God's place and seek revenge on those who hurt us. What he's saying is that we're weary because we're always trying to take God's place. When we don't trust God, at the essence it's saying this, you do not belong on the throne. I do. That is a dangerous proposition. So what do we do? What do we do with all of this? We have determined that our wills are weak and weary. We have determined that our will is faulty. So what do we do in this petition, your will be done? We submit to that very thing. His will, not mine. It's not about my freedom. It's not about my choice or my wants or my desires or my entitlement or rather what the Lord would have for me. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was weary. He was weak. He was scared. He was overcome with sorrow, and he pleaded with the Lord that there be another way. Please, make another way. Yet, he trusted that the will of the Lord would be for the best, even though it was full of hurt and pain. It seems, though, so easy to say that about Jesus. Well, he's God. Of course he can trust the Lord like that. I'm not God. How, how, how do I have the ability to trust like that? I, there's no way. So what do we do again is the question. The only way that we're able to trust the Lord is to see the lengths and the heights and the depths that Jesus went in order for him to show us his unfathomable trust in the Lord and love for us. Matthew 27, 26, it says these words. Then he, Pilate, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. The cup of wrath was now being poured out on our Savior. A known and convicted criminal was set free in exchange for an innocent man who was taken out into the courtyard and his flesh mutilated by the whips of a Roman legion. The cup was being tipped. Verse 30, and they spit on him, and they took the reed, struck him on the head. The cup continued to tip. Verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Our Savior had a spike driven through his left wrist. Our Savior had a spike driven through his right wrist. 
He had a spike driven through the tops of his feet. Our Savior was crucified as the cup of God's wrath was poured out upon him. And his blood stained the earth that he created. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Our Savior died. Our Savior was now separated from the Father from eternity past and drank the entirety of the cup of wrath. There was no other way. Someone had to pay the price of sin and death. And only Jesus could do that. But that's not the way the story's supposed to go, is it? That's not a good outcome. This story cannot end there. There there seems to be a betrayal in that story somewhere. How is it that this Jesus would die? That's not the way it works. How can I trust that kind of God? Matthew 28, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said, come, see the place where they lay him. Our Savior was not held by sin or death. It's not held by weakness or weariness, not held by the pit of hell. Our Savior was not held by the enemy or by his weapon of death. Our Savior rose victorious, and the reality of the will of the Lord was given life. So how do I trust the Lord? We look to an empty grave, and we see the same thing that the women saw, nothing. But then we turn our eyes to heaven and what do we see? We see the Lord Jesus sitting at the right hand of God as King of kings, Lord of lords, and God of gods. He's seated in glory at the right hand of the Father. Therefore, as we look around our world, as we look around our own lives, what what must we see? We see the victor King Jesus. We see that he drank the entirety of the cup of God's wrath so that I wouldn't have to and gives us new life. What does it mean to pray your will be done? It means to look to a risen Savior, Jesus Christ. It means to look to see His glory and His majesty. It means to look to a Savior who suffered the worst things in life. So when the worst things in my life come, we look to Him and we can trust and say, He is victorious over sin and death and hell. Jesus has won the day. Not weakness, not weariness. And Jesus conformed his will to the will of the Father and now gives us life. What does it mean to pray, Your will be done? It means to trust him in everything, in every area of life. So we say, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, our God, uphold us by your strength, by your victory.
And we pray now, may your will be done in our lives. Go before us. Give us grace and wisdom. We give you much thanks and much praise as you are our King and our God, our Savior. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.